This episode of Creative Control is brought to you by Verizon, the network America relies on. I'm your host, Casey Finey, and this is Creative Conversation, a Fast Company podcast. I think for most people, becoming an architect or becoming a doctor are two very different and fulfilling careers on their own. But Dr. Diana Anderson has found a way to combine both fields. She's even coined her own word for her title, a docitect. Dr. Anderson's work dives into how better design in healthcare facilities can lead to better outcomes in a patient's health. In our conversation, Dr. Anderson explains her docitect origin story and how creative thinking and design might be a life or death situation. Well, Dr. Anderson, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me today. I'm glad to be here. So I feel like most people would have a fulfilling career as just a physician or just an architect, but you're both, which is just kind of mind blowing to me. But you know, and you've you've coined yourself as a doctor as a docitect, which I love. Uh, and I know you must get this question more times than you can count. But how exactly did you become a docitect? Like, what set you on the path to where you are now? A great question. It is one that I get pretty frequently is, did you sleep less in architecture school or less in medical school? And <laughs> definitely, I slept less as an architecture student. Uh, really? Many, many long nights of building models, lots of fun in the studio, lots of teamwork, really great wow. experiences. It was a lot of fun to, to study to be an architect. But yeah, no, it's a good question. And I developed a slide for some of my lectures to illustrate the path I took. And as you can imagine, I didn't pick an image that had a straight shot path from A to B. The image that I picked is over a very bumpy, rocky mountain where the path twists and turns, uh, lots of detours. And I think, you know, this wasn't necessarily a straight shot plan. And often people's careers end up that way. You know, even the term docitect popped into my head one day just based on a conversation with someone that you, you couldn't plan that. So there were a lot of unexpected twists and turns, but looking back, everything seemed to fall into place. I started out as an architecture student and architecture was something I, I thought would be a great way to, um, to begin the career and study. It was really interesting to learn about fine arts and engineering and science and social science and psychology and how buildings affect us, how to design spaces, how to sort of encompass the void with materials and really make an atmosphere out of that. That was really exciting to me. And that was my undergraduate time. And then at the end of that three years of study, a few of us went on a trip to Scandinavia with one of our architectural professors. And we happened to go to Finland, where we went into a tuberculosis sanatorium that was designed in 1920s, 1930s by uh, an architect in Finland and is still functioning as a general hospital today. And it's considered a World Heritage Site. It's quite well known. It's called the Paimio Sanatorium by Alvar Aalto, who's a very well-known architect. And I walked into the space and I have to say that growing up in Canada, going to a hospital was always extremely unpleasant. Just the smell that hit you in the lobby was something that I could vividly picture or recall in my head. But walking into this hospital in Finland, I felt pretty good. I felt uplifted, lots of bright sunlight, some of the walls were painted yellow, lots of plants and nature. The building was really used as a form of treatment, which fascinated me. You know, at that time, we didn't have a treatment for tuberculosis, and the architect had to say, how can I design a facility that will help treat patients 
And that was something that really turned a light on in my head. And I said, you know, I want to design a hospital for my architectural master's thesis. I want to learn what that entails. I want to speak to the clinicians, the people working in these buildings. And so I spent time going around on a fellowship through the United States and Canada, looking at hospitals, talking to the clinical teams. And something really changed at that point. And I said to myself, you know what, maybe I want to be more in the medical side of things, really treating patients at the bedside. But you know, once I finally got to medical school after that, I found myself being on rounds and looking up at the ceiling tiles, counting the square footage of the room, thinking about the lighting and the layout, and realizing I couldn't give up the architectural side of me, that somehow they had to merge. I saw lots of potential for the space that I was practicing in as a medical student and then a resident, lots of opportunity to change that up, to make me perform my clinical duties in a different way, to be more successful. And you know, while if you had talked to me maybe 10 or 15 years ago, I would have said, yeah, this might be a really strange combination. Today, I think the thinking has broadened and I get frequent calls from medical students, even architectural students, design students, medical residents, practicing physicians, nurses saying, you know, I'm in medicine, but how can I get a design background or how can I get some training? Because I know that if we have a different space to work in, we can treat patients better. We can do our job faster, more efficiently. We can not burn out as fast. There's a lot of thinking now, especially with COVID in terms of the physical environment, and a big understanding of the fact that the physical environment can really impact us. And so while I've taken a lot of twists and turns, you know, I, after medical school, I took some time to become an architect. You know, once you finish architecture school, you then have to do work in a firm and actually design and build buildings, take a number of examinations, and that was an important part of the puzzle to me. And then practicing medicine too. But it's been a hard journey. I think any hybrid career, there's not really a model for it. But I anticipate in the future that many more educational programs and professional practice settings will integrate design thinking and clinical care. There are already a number of health programs starting that are thinking about how can we combine not only medicine and architecture, but also urban design, urban planning, and public health. COVID has made us realize, you know, thinking about how do we make city design safer? How do we design for impromptu meeting, which is something architects always try to do, right? Buildings are meant to bring us together. But now, how do we then convert them and have the flexibility to keep us socially distanced? And so there's a lot of overlap between public health and urban design. I think it's so fascinating because, you know, when you think about that intersection of you know, architecture and healthcare and how it can make it better. I mean, I think about it almost like a Venn diagram, like where one circle is the staff's needs and then you have the patients in another. And then you can even go so as far as to add like another circle with like loved ones, families, friends, visitors, and all that type of stuff. And so there's a lot to consider. So for you, I mean, where do you start to unpack this? Like when you think about having a better design, better layout of, of a healthcare facility, how are you taking into consideration all of the moving parts that are within that? You're right. A building is very complex. And you could even say that a hospital, which is an extremely complex building type, is almost like a mini city. Oh, absolutely. A small scale city. You've got lots of systems. You've got laundry and linens. You've got food services. You've got mechanical, electrical. You've got patients. You've got the front facing public lobbies, lots of different moving parts. And you also have the fact that medical practice changes at a very fast pace. Yes. So 
given you know, new technologies that come in, new imaging modalities, how do we design a hospital that will last us for 50 years? When maybe in 50 years from now, we won't even have doctors and nurses. It will be robots or virtual reality. We don't know. As an architect and a designer, part of the skill set is really forward thinking, trying to imagine the future, or, or simply designing for that flexibility. Mm-hmm. Even if you don't know what space needs will be, being able to design to incorporate flexibility to change up current spaces to something that might be needed is important. And certainly, I think your other comment was really interesting, right? You actually targeted right away the different users of the space. And, and that's great because I think one issue that I talk about and that I've seen in terms of a trend is, you know, I call it sort of the sort of pendulum swing of healthcare design. I think a number of decades ago, we were really designing for the clinical needs. And somewhere that's shifted, especially here in the United States, where healthcare is a business in a way, right? And there are consumers who are the patients, there's a payer system. And so having beautiful lobbies and cafes and large patient rooms and views is very important. And I would make a general statement to say that I think our resources and emphasis as architects and the administrators of these hospitals has shifted to a very front-facing building type where a lot of the resources are put into public patient spaces and less is put into the staff space, which is much more behind the scenes. I would like to see that pendulum swing come back to sit more in the middle. And if you think about design equity and designing for all users, which is something architects are trained to do, uh, I think we have to acknowledge not just the patients who are maybe the clients, sure, but the staff who are working there. And that includes the physicians, the nurses, all of the clinicians, but also the staff, too, that keep the hospital running. That's extremely important. We've seen trends in medicine that are impacted by this. And I would hazard a guess to say physician burnout and nursing burnout is impacted by the physical environment. We don't have a hardcore data set or randomized control trial to show you that, yes, there's a direct link, but I would hazard a guess to say it contributes. And I think we're starting to realize this. And how do we bring that back and make sure that we provide spaces for respite and wellness? As an intern in New York City, I can tell you that there was nowhere really to go physically if you would become overwhelmed or tired or just have needed a moment to yourself to shed a tear after a really difficult clinical encounter. Where you would bump into people doing that would be in the supply closet. Wow. We need to provide space for respite. I think wellness and mental health has been you know, emphasized a lot for patients and families and less so for staff. So I think focusing on all of users is a, is, a, is a big thing. And if I bring it into COVID times, because we are in the middle of the pandemic, mm-hmm. thinking about congregate living in terms of nursing homes and long-term care, we're seeing a big issue there, right? We're seeing residents who have to stay in, staff who are coming in and might be contributing to the virus spread and then families who are completely shut out, caregivers. So how can the building somehow accommodate all of those users? I do believe that design can come up with solutions. Sometimes there's give and take, can't be perfect with everything. Of course. But I think we can potentially do better in the future. Right. And I would love it if you can paint a picture of like what exactly that would look like. Like what, what in your mind is a key issue that better design could solve in healthcare and just sort of the thinking around it, like what, what exactly does that look like? You know, what, what's the problem and how would you attack it with design? So for that, I'd probably say evidence-based design would be a big answer to your question. 
And for the listeners, I might define that a little bit because I think not everybody knows what that means. In clinical medicine, we have something called evidence-based medicine. And if you were to go to your physician and they were to say, well, you know, I think we need to start you on this particular medication, they wouldn't just think about that blindly, right? They would look to the literature and see, well, there was a study done or many studies done that show starting someone on this medication with this condition has good outcomes, right? That it's helpful for the condition. So we look to the evidence, to the data. Architecture has gone in a similar direction, albeit it's much newer and more recent. But in 1984, there was a very pivotal research study that was published in Science, a very reputable publication. It was, it was relatively simple in terms of the question. They took two sets of patients, both of which had had surgery, they had their gallbladder removed, and they were in hospital rooms, both on the same unit. But half of the patients had a window that looked at a brick wall, very sort of urban. I can think of you know, my time in New York City. I looked at many brick walls outside the window, right? High density. The other half looked at a green park lots of trees. They found that people who looked at the park, the patients, went home sooner. So that means stayed in the hospital less. That means less cost, right? And they also took less pain medication. Nurses were also more satisfied with the care and the whole experience. So there was also a staff effect as well. That's a very powerful result. And since then, that really spearheaded this evidence-based design movement saying, maybe we should be measuring what's happening in buildings. And so since then, you know, we're several decades from then, we have thousands of these studies. I think the one caveat or criticism I'll say of evidence-based design is these are not necessarily big, largely funded randomized control trials that you would see in the clinical context with thousands of people across many sites, which would make your research a little bit more applicable and valid. Now, these are smaller studies often done by architects or researchers without a lot of funding. So I think we're still a long ways away. I advocate for evidence-based design because I think we need to design these building types based on evidence. I'll, I'll give you another example. I'm a geriatrician, so I work with older patients, older adults, and I'm very interested in the nursing home environment. Most of our evidence-based design studies have been done in the hospital environment. We have good data on emergency design, intensive care unit design, general hospital space, even clinic space. Nursing homes, I would say probably not as much. Some of you out there might have heard of the Dementia Village, which is a smaller scale nursing home type of environment, but it's a village setting. You know, residents who have cognitive impairment can leave their little apartment and wander around, go to a cafe, even go to a grocery store, which isn't really real, right? This is a gated community. So they don't know that this isn't real, but to them, they think that they're going about their daily activities. Now, what we know about this type of model is it's very successful. The staff who work there say these residents take many less doses of psychotropic medication, get much less agitated. Often patients with cognitive impairment, if you put them in a small traditional nursing home room and sort of lock the door, that promotes agitation. There's a, there's a tendency to want to walk and wander around and do your regular activities, right? Now we're starting to build more dementia villages. There's one in Canada. We're thinking about them in the United States. It sounds good, right? These results sound great but these are anecdotal reports. We've asked a few people, hey, how did this building work out? We need to study this building type and then prototype based on that. And I would even argue we should study so that we know what we're building. We have a tendency in architecture to build a building which can take up to 10 years. So one of those big hospital towers you see in many urban areas doesn't go up in a year. It takes many, many years of planning of construction. We tend to build those and then 
go back in and study them. That's a lot of time, money, and resource, right, to take a decade. What if we could study them beforehand and know what we're doing and know what outcomes we'll have? So to answer the question, I would really say research is where it's at. Of course, we need to retain the design factor. These are not cookie cutter buildings. There's still a lot of individualization and we do that with medicine. If I'm seeing you as a patient in the clinic and I wanna start that medication, but all the research was done on 95 year olds and you're 30, you have to take that evidence and apply it to the context. So that's also really important. I think there's some fear that, you know, if we apply evidence, we might lose that architectural feeling. And you know, I'd say the architectural atmosphere, the design component. And I don't think we will, but I think evidence needs to be part of the game going forward. This episode of Creative Control is brought to you by Verizon, the network you can rely on for your phone and for your home internet. Find the plan that's right for you at verizon.com. I also want to touch on this sort of large scale of time to realize a building because, you know, I think that that, that kind of runs counter to or way I think about it, that runs counter to innovation. You know, it's like here are these really big, you know, kind of fast moving ideas, but you can't really, to, to make sure that's executed, you're, it takes a decade, as you mentioned. So, you know, uh, and you, you, you talked about earlier how it's very important to be forward thinking in this regard. So for you, I'd love to hear a little bit more about how you may be using technology now to make sure that, you know, the innovation is on par with, how long it actually takes to execute these things. Like, how do, how do you wrap your mind around that large scale of time that it takes for these buildings to be realized, knowing that, you know, things change so rapidly? So focusing on technology, which is, I think, what you're asking about with respect to healthcare design and construction. So that's an interesting question. And that's where I think it's a good illustration of this, what I call the gap between medicine and architecture. You know, I think if you speak to clinicians, they'll tell you, informatics and technology needs to be part of the design thinking even before you put pen to paper. So, you know, you're not going to sketch out the building and then plunk in the technology. Informatics needs to be built in all of the hardware, software, middleware. That all has to be thought about right at the beginning. I'm not sure that's necessarily the case at the moment. I have one clinical colleague who likes to say, you know, an IV pole is not just an IV pole anymore. Everything is a computer. And so we can't just pop it into a space. You almost have to work it in right at the beginning in the drawing board. So I think ensuring informatics as part of the design process is important and technology. And what healthcare architects started to do a few years ago is build mock-ups. Uh, simply take masking tape into a large empty parking lot and just map out the floor plan, the outline of the rooms, and bring in the clinicians and say, can you use this space? How does it work? Even building patient beds out of cardboard. We were talking about technology, so where I'm going with this is virtual reality has come into play. You know, do we need to build these mock-ups? Can virtual reality help us pre-experience space? You know, is this going to be a component of architectural design process going forward? It's not widely acceptable or adopted yet, but doesn't say it couldn't be. I think it would be an interesting tool uh, for architects to use. So I think you know, technology is changing things just like it is in medicine. You know, we're doing a lot more telemedicine. Zoom medicine, one could even sort of say in the future, perhaps many people won't leave their homes. Maybe we have a room in the home that's set up for our clinical care and connects directly to our physicians and hospitals may be rarely used. Hard to say, but uh, we're certainly shifting very quickly with technology, so much so that you know, it's a challenge for buildings to keep up with that change. 
Nice. And, you know, I think it's, it's easier to, for me at least, to digest the idea of how architecture and design can improve healthcare. But are there any teachings in the medical field that can be applied to better architecture and design? That's an interesting question. And I'd say not one I get too often. I think what I would say to that, to that is trying to integrate the clinical syndromes and the medicine into the design models mm-hmm. would be important. And important again at the beginning of the, the process. Um, and that's and I think this segues nicely into a point that I'd like to make and really advocate for clinicians being part of the design process and participating in it. Mm-hmm. That would be important. So architects, you know, they're not physicians or nurses or clinicians or pharmacists. They haven't, and that's fine. You know, they're doing the best they can with their skill set. But sometimes a good example I give is as a medical student, you're taught to examine patients from the right-hand side of the patient. And that is quite standard from a convention perspective in North America and Europe. Probably if you go through the literature, it's maybe because of frequency of right-handedness, our bodies are also not symmetrical, your liver's on the right-hand side, we Mm -hmm. look at certain blood vessels in the neck, so we approach from the right. If you approach from the left during a medical school exam, you can be deducted marks. This Mm -hmm. is a serious thing, you know, you're really trained, and so that was ingrained in me, and when I became a resident physician and had to see patients on my own, I would often walk into an exam room or an inpatient room and not be able to get to the right-hand side. Mm. The the exam table wasn't positioned in the room correctly. The room wasn't set up for that type of exam. And so that's another example of this gap or disconnect. But if a clinician had been there at the beginning saying, wait, before you sketch this even or build the model or put the drawings into construction, uh, we just need to shift a few things around because it's a relatively simple thing. And I think that's where you get that overlap of the clinical models and clinical care with the design ideas. That's so funny. I did not even know that. I have two siblings that are doctors and I did not know that you have to approach them with the right. I learned something today. Um, yeah, so, I mean, how how has working within these two disciplines shaped your creative thinking? So that's an interesting question too. I think the biggest challenge for me shifting from an architectural background into a clinical setting, going to medical school, was hard. I felt that my creativity was stifled to a certain degree. Right. I, I was used to being in the design studio and having a problem such as, here's two sheets of cardboard. How do you make a chair out of this that's structurally sound and use no glue or tape? You know, that's a design problem. You really have to think outside the box. To go into medical school then and say, here's a thousand pages to read and memorize, and there's no room for really doing anything else, I felt that it was a hard, uh, a hard transition. I would say though that now with medical school, what I, what I didn't see when I was a medical student, most of my colleagues were from the pure and applied sciences. But now there's been a huge shift, I think, in what people are looking for in the future of physicians and clinical personnel. Many of my colleagues later on and looking at medical students, they're coming from all kinds of backgrounds. Nothing is off limits, right? You can be an architect and go into medical school, have a background as a musician, a chef, in the Peace Corps, anything really, uh, you can learn the medicine part. That's not the issue. You don't, you know, that can be done. But um, there's been a big shift to having physicians come from social science backgrounds, recognizing the impact of that on their training and just thinking about the determinants of health, right? One of which I think is architecture and design, mm-hmm. you know, and, you know, the cityscape too. But it's definitely shifted. So I think there's much more room for creativity in clinical medicine. And I think that's as, 
a lot about the interest people are showing in design, right? Clinicians who have worked for decades as a physician are interested now to possibly get a degree in some kind of design thinking or take a course. Mm -hmm. And that takes a lot of initiative and just shows that there's a lot of creative potential in the medical industry that maybe hasn't been harnessed. And how do we then leverage that now to right. be innovative and solve problems? Definitely. And, you know, in just talking to you, I feel like, again, coming from these two disciplines, like I've, I would assume that you have just an amazing mind for uh, problem solving. And so I wonder if there are any sort of universal lessons in problem solving that you could share that people could apply to their own careers. Because, you know, as I mentioned, it's it's coming, being a physician and being an architect, like these are two, these are two areas where problem solving is key. You know, it's, it, there, there is a lot to kind of factor in. And so, you know, coming from both of those worlds and, you know, kind of combining those worlds, I guess, like what, are there any sort of universal tips you can share on, on how people can be better problem solvers? Yeah, that's a great question too. And I'm just trying to reflect a little before I answer it. And I think talking from personal experience, how did I go about blending this and becoming, you know, more astute at problem solving? You know, that's challenging. I think I think keeping in mind as a general tip to just talk to a lot of different people, obtain a lot of different mentors, you learn from people along the way. And if you think you're the only one trying to do something, maybe, but there's lots of other people who've potentially done something similar and also paved a new path. And I think that was really important to remember. Um, and I think, you know, we're at a certain time in the world where problem solving and innovation is, is really sought after. Mm -hmm. And lots of out-of-the-box ideas are totally okay and I think it's okay as another tip to think big you know have that blue sky thinking think crazy thoughts think I can be an architect and a doctor together and maybe you need to scale that back at some point and maybe only 80% of that career model will will come into play but I think it's okay to dream big and people should um, a tip that someone gave me when I first started my intern year which was a really demanding year in medical training the one that all the movies and TV shows are really uh, derived from you know, this mentor said, uh, write stuff down, write down the stories of the patients and the issues you encounter. And I said, you know, we're working 80, 100, 120 hour weeks. I don't have time to write the stories. And she said, and I just simply remember, she said, then just write one line and that'll trigger your memory later. And I have to say, I don't know that this is a general tip for problem solving, but that's been a really important component everything you encounter, if it's meaningful or has an impact, or even just an observation, I walk into a room and I notice that the sink is in the wrong location and that the physician I'm working with doesn't wash their hands because of it. I write that down. Mm. And yeah, it's one line, but it sparks a lot of memories. And from that, a lot of stories have come into play and I've been able to write a lot of papers, give presentations, and these anecdotes are meaningful. And I guess that's one lesson too, right? We're, we're very data-driven and evidence-driven in the world, right. but it's okay not to have a big data set or a randomized control study that's funded by millions of dollars. One story by one patient or one person has a lot of meaning too, not just in the medical field, but I think any field. And that can really fuel change just by, by one person's story or observation. So I would, I would urge people out there to think about that. And one good example I can give is in my first week as a medical intern, you know, we encountered an elderly woman in the intensive care unit. She was quite sick. She had a tracheostomy tube in her throat, helping her breathe, couldn't talk. And her heart rate was very high. 
We couldn't figure out why, and we couldn't really fix it. Uh, she was in a room without a window. I think that will be surprising to people who are listening, but we do still have hospital rooms without windows in the United States. These are older buildings who were grandfathered in. And on rounds that day, we sort of suggested, you know, maybe we can move her across the way to a window bed overlooking the river. I brought up that evidence-based design study from the 80s I mentioned earlier. The senior doctor on the team listened, did a literature search, found this evidence-based design, and said, sure, let's try it. And the next day, her heart rate had normalized. Now, my point with this is this was not a well-designed study. It's not necessarily a correlation. There's probably other factors that contributed. The lesson, though, when I reviewed it with my mentor and said, you know, like, what, what do I do with this? It's inspiring. What do I do? And he said, that's okay. It's one story. It's one anecdote. But from there, change can follow. And the anecdote is really that the clinical team thought about the built environment in her treatment plan. And so from that day on, thinking about the room and the room location was something we did. And so that was just sort of an inspiring story, hopefully, to say that these anecdotes and stories and little moments really matter. And whatever way you can use them, write them down, remember them, and retell them is really powerful and meaningful. And I think will create change in the world, or I hope so. Well, that just is a perfect way to end it. I, I don't even want to ask another question because I don't want to disturb the balance of that beautiful answer. So, <laughs> Dr. Anderson, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. This was so enlightening. and. I actually want to talk to my siblings about some of this because I, I it's like I said in researching your background you know it's I want to I want to get their perspective on it because you know my brother is an otolaryngologist and my sister's an anesthesiologist and you know I, I it I, this is something that you enter a hospital and you you don't you don't immediately think about design you, you know the design is bad you know most hospitals you go in and like you mentioned earlier like you get a bad feeling from it just kind of like ugh, but I just think it's fascinating that there are people like you out there that are considering just the value of the space, you know, and I think that I think it's very admirable, admirable what you do. So I'm glad. You I ask your siblings. I'd love it if you ask them, yes. and say, do you, you know, how does the space affect you? Do you find if your room exam room was different, would that impact how you interact with patients and their families? I'm sure if they have an office, they won't have a window and they'll say, you know, I wish I could see a tree every once in a while. Yeah. I wish I had a place to take a moment. Um, For sure. I think that the challenge is really how do we advocate design, which I didn't really mention this, but the, co the cost, you know, people assume that it's more costly and it, it isn't necessarily. And even if it is, we actually have some good published data out there to show that if you employ evidence-based design upfront in your hospital designs, your return on investment will be maybe two years, which is, I'm not a business person, but pretty good in my mind. And just thinking about that study, right, with the windows and patients went home sooner after surgery, uh, that has good cost implications. Yeah. So you're saving overall money to the system. Um, you know, an example is hospital curtains, right? We all know those old curtains around <laughs> beds, around toilets that we don't really want to touch, yeah. especially today with infection control. We're starting to see a shift to electrostatic glass, especially in critical care. You've probably seen these in some of the fancy nightclubs in Europe where you go into the bathroom and you think, how is this bathroom stall with clear glass? But then when you flick a switch, right. it becomes opaque. Like, well, that's really neat. But well, we use that in hospital. Yeah, it's more expensive. But think about the infections that you can reduce. And also, you don't need a physical person to change out and wash those curtains mm -hmm. between everybody. And I haven't seen a study to date that does that cost comparison. But that's really important. Um, and that's a good case to make, right?
So I guess the question to me that I'm struggling with is how do you advocate for better design? And architects are trying, but it's not enough. We need buy-in from the policymakers and from the healthcare administrators. I think the clinicians have bought in. Yeah. I'm sure your siblings will say, yes, I see value to the design of the space. Of I'm not sure that we've made it to other levels yet. Well, hopefully someday you will. <laughs> so, Dr. Anderson, thank you so much again for your time. This oh, call wonderful. me Diana. You're so formal. I mean, I just, I like to, I like to employ people's actual titles because you work so hard for it. So, you know, <laughs> thank you, Diana. <laughs>